Hello, legends. Welcome to today's show. Catching up with Cub, as always, is brought to you by Cub, the Club of United Business, Australia's number one members club connecting our country's top entrepreneurs and business leaders. And today, we're catching up with Greg Weiss, the founder of Solidify and Career365. Greg is known as one of Australia's most prolific career advisors and experienced recruiters. Greg and I had a really in-depth conversation on the importance for entrepreneurs to find their operational soulmate, the implementer, that person that helps them scale. Greg is an expert in finding these people for entrepreneurs like myself and many of our listeners today. And we ran through the process of exactly how to get that done. Greg also shared how to best onboard new staff and the importance on making sure that you give new staff members the greatest opportunity possible to succeed within your team, feeling a great sense of belonging. It was a very knowledgeable episode. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the show, Greg. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm very excited because uh, me and you actually caught up not too long ago and uh, you were sharing uh, with me a, a bit of insight into your area of expertise, um, uh, which is very much in the HR and, and staffing capabilities of a company. And I just thought, wow, this is we need to maybe share some of your knowledge with, uh, with our listeners on, on the show. But how, I guess how would you describe, what would you say you're, you're an expert in? You're, how would you describe your what you do? I've got a company called Keep. It has two brands, one being Career365 and the other one being Solidify. Career365 is the uh, is one to do with um, career transitioning people uh, and Solidify is to do with the recruitment of, of an operational other half that supports the um, – it's like the counterbalance, the yin to the yang of an entrepreneur or a business partner. So we specialise – in operational soulmates on the career three six five side of things, we um, we look at um, either employee onboarding or outplacement. And you might remember um, the movie called Up in the Air with George Clooney, and you might remember also there's another one called Company Men with Ben Affleck. My business does that sort of thing. So your business fires people for companies, or is it? Do you actually do the firing, or do you do the had like? Because in that movie, I'm trying to remember the George Clooney one, he actually sits there on the screen, doesn't he? He's like, listen, you haven't got a job. I understand this will be hard. Do you actually do that? No, thankfully not. (laughs) Thankfully not. No, what will happen is that the employer will come to us and say, look, sadly what we've done is we've made a handful of people uh, redundant. Redundant. Um, Can you please look after those people? So. Thankfully, I don't do the George Clooney piece. Okay. So you're not the George Clooney of, uh, what would you call it, of uh, firing people in Australia, but you do, you basically help companies. You help companies help the people that they fire. Yes. Help them move on. Once they've been Clooneyed, that's when I actually pick up. You come in. So typically I get a call from the human resources department to say, Greg, sadly, we're going to let five people go. Uh, Can you... um, just make sure that you handle these people in a sensitive way. So, for example, today I I called three people who were being given two weeks' notice that their um, employment was terminating because of business performance and um, I'm there to actually act as the safety net. So our placement is there to not only help the employee with the, um, the support that they need, but it's actually there to uphold the values and do the socially responsible thing that an employer is there to do with their employees and that's 
to look after them. And how do you handle that yourself personally? Like it must be emotionally draining, though, speaking to people that are losing their jobs quite often. Well, losing their jobs, losing their hair, that's exactly what I've done. I've lost my hair as a result of a whole lot of uh, HR side of things. Bad joke, but that's actually the truth. I do take it fairly personally personally, and, and it's a very important thing to be able to separate oneself from the trauma. It is a traumatic experience. And one of the traumas, they say that um, as far as big, uh, big experiences in life is concerned, is moving home, um, divorce, um, job, job loss. When you haven't actually um, planned the job loss and it's imposed on you, it's even more difficult. So what we do is we, we at Career365 handle those people in a very caring way. And I pioneered um, a, an online delivery model coupled with, and this was revolutionary at its time, way before COVID came about, we were actually in the top first 100 Zoom accounts in Australia. We actually did video coaching um, throughout Australasia for people who were let go. Oh, wow. And so those are the two companies, uh, mm-hmm. uh, two, brands, two brands, Solidify and th- uh, Career365. Career 365. Mm-hmm. Now, when you were just talking about Solidify, you mentioned uh, helping businesses find their soul. What does that mean? Okay, so it's a, it's a good question. What I find is I've been fascinated with how people tick and about organisational culture for as long as I can remember. And culture is the big differentiator between one organisation and the, and, the, and the other. Often what I find is that entrepreneurs are quite visionary. They also happen to want to start a business and have a desire to build that particular business. But there's a certain point in time where that dream or that desire happens and it starts to it's, uh, they, they get excited and a year or so into it that excitement wanes because they don't know how to scale. So the idea being that they'll maybe lose the essence of their business or their their soul will disappear. What I say in my LinkedIn profile is almost like, you know, I help the entrepreneur or the business owner rediscover their mojo. And so it's an exciting thing, scaling, growing a business, because one has a dream, like you have, Daniel, okay, about building community. And so the idea is, is that typically a personality of an entrepreneur is such that they have a desire to or they have a natural propensity to go and connect with people outside to really be the outward brand of whatever business but they don't have necessarily the systemic skills to be able to set up a business that's that yin yang polar differences kind of like the relationship between what would be like a ceo and a general manager yes or or often an operations manager yes correct so ceo COO. So there are some famous examples. Um, we've all he- heard of Henry Ford, but we actually haven't heard of his counterpart, Fred Cousins, for example, or um, there was Walt Disney and Roy Disney. And whilst I don't know the details of the organisation hugely deeply, but I understand that, say, in Afterpay, you've got um, – um, Molna and Eisen, and they are not overlapping; they are complementary skills. Okay, very good. And and um, so we'll get into all of that in a bit. But I'd love to learn more about you, where you're from. Mm-hmm. Um, I read um, in your prep sheet that uh, you you weren't from Australia. Was that no? I'm born in Australia. Oh, you were born but in I'm, Australia, but I'm first generation Aussie. Okay, mm-hmm. and because your parents fled Europe, um, and yeah, I guess I'd love to to kind of 
learn a bit more about yourself? Sure. So my mum was born in Berlin, and um, but she was born in Berlin in 1929, which was at the time um, when the Depression hit. It wasn't a really fun time for people particularly of my heritage. So my um, family heritage is Jewish. So um, Nazi Germany came about and it was, um, I'm putting it mildly, it was not a lot of fun. So in 1938, um, she, her parents and her brother were literally on the last um, train out of Berlin and they went west and uh, they were able to escape the horrors of, uh, of the war, of the Second World War. My father was born in Czechoslovakia and unfortunately he was um, caught up in all of this. And in fact he um, was in 1944 at the ripe old age of, uh, well he was in his, he was in his teens, uh, he was um, sent to camp and um, concentration camp where he immediately lost his mum and his uh, and a brother, and he and his father survived a year, and he just uh, literally survived camp by four hours. The Americans came in and rescued that camp. It was um, um, south of Munich, and um, fa- two famous people who actually were um, part of the American battalion. Uh, rescued them. The first one was the crooner, Tony Bennett. If you'd know Tony Bennett, fantastic music guy. I love his music, just like the Frank Sinatra. I've only discovered that a couple of weeks ago that Tony Bennett was actually in that battalion. And the other one was a famous uh, playwright, J.D. Salinger, um, and they were both in that. So in any case, my father was able to survive, but his father was was unable to, literally on the day of liberation. It was an important thing because Dad had lost all hope in, you know, um, in God and all that sort of stuff and as you'd expect seeing the horrors of that and um, and what happened was that dad then um, came out to Australia met my mum he said that that was the time when his life began again so it was many years after the war or oh, four or five years after the war that that actually had happened in any case without going into too much of the detail these were important um, life lessons my mum uh, decided, uh, among other things, instead of just, just, and I'm just using the term just, but instead of just being um, a mother and a housewife in those days, uh, to become increasingly active in the women's movement. And in fact, my mum got an OAM for her services towards helping uh, improve the quality of life of women. My father was the strong man behind a strong woman. He's quite a gentle guy but he's also very entrepreneurial as well. And he and his brother formed the pharmaceutical business and they were the first ones to make generic um, medicines in Australia. And um, and so dad is still around. He's in his mid-90s. He's um, a phenomenal man, still lives independently. But dad helped me really based on his war years. He basically said, Greg, don't care if you actually have to eat grass. This is actually literally what he said. I don't care if you you have to eat grass. Just don't work for somebody else. Don't work for a corporation. Have your own business. And um, after having done my MBA um, and I was really enjoying corporate life, I'd worked at American Express and absolutely loved that, there were some subsequent experiences in corporate world where I just said, you know what, Dad was probably right. Let me just – I'm just not wired for corporate world. And so I formed my own businesses and I've been largely doing human resources businesses ever since. It's quite interesting that, isn't it? Because 
I mean, it's very common in the Jewish uh, community where uh, you're self-employed. And I was going to say that to start, but it's actually not. It's very common in the migrant community yeah. mm-hmm. to be self-employed. It is. For example, my, my family was almost the same way. Mm-hmm. I wonder what, what, what that is, what, what causes that. Well, I think it's probably just I, – I think it's a sense of independence, a sense of standing up on your own two feet and being responsible for things. But the exciting thing about – being independent and going to business yourself is you're relying on yourself. And I think they were the skills that my dad and my mum imparted to me was really be self-responsible, really rely on yourself. You know what's really interesting about that? Because if you think about why someone's leaving a country, it's normally because they couldn't rely on those that were there, Mm. whether it be, I don't know, an immediate family, a government or whatever. And so, yeah, that probably makes sense. You know, if I'm going to move to a new country, start a new life, Mm. I don't want to rely on something other than me. If Mm. I'm going to do this again, I'm going to, I'm relying on my on my kind of self, and maybe that has some sort of cause to, to that effect. Yeah. Um, but but also there's the other other ones like uh, you might have a different name than the what's usual in that society, so you know might be less less hireable in the sense you might have a an accent or a language barrier, yeah. or yeah. and so all these things contribute to well, if I need to make money, I need to actually own my own business because I, I might not get chosen over the person next to me who, who speaks English better or, or I, I think and, and I think that's actually very much the case that was that was happening in those days because, you know, in, in the years straight after the war, if you arrived in Australia and you were literally off the boat, they'd called you a bloody refo. And um, and so now um, that doesn't that's not the case. We've got a very different setup in Australia. But notwithstanding uh, I think people are basically saying this is a fantastic land of opportunity. What is it that they can actually do? So, you know, my father and his brother formed the pharmaceutical business. It was very successful in its day. It was sold out to a large multinational. And um, uh, these were some of the important skills that I learned. But whatever it was, it was really around um, being independent. I always found I was elected to... Um, positions of leadership at school. I was head prefect or what I call head warden. I think what they just um, always encouraged is step up, take responsibility. And I really like the idea that if you see something wrong in the world, if you can fix it up, that's great. If you can make money as a result of that as well, it's great. So one of the things that I do, um, well, the main areas that I do, which is within the human resources area, is, I mean, people are the hardest parts of the business to get right. And if you can get that right, it's absolutely um, fantastic. Then you can really grow, build, scale, whatever it is. It's not easy. And I remember somebody, I think it was Jim Collins, said the biggest problem the business has is those ones that have got hair on them, in other words, people. And so if you can get that right, it's great. But I've always been fascinated with the way people tick, taking responsibility, taking leadership around around just improving things. But I always just loved what really made people um, um, tick. And so how did you end up landing uh, in the position, uh, so sticking more towards at this point in time, uh, the working with the entrepreneur in terms of finding their operational partner? Mm-hmm. How did you end up in that? How, how did you find that? Oh, that's a, really, that's, a, that's a great question. I feel that a lot of the trials and tribulations that I've personally had and then a lot of the social group that I have as well with a number of business owners and entrepreneurs, et cetera, et cetera. It's constantly around seeing where problems arise. Uh, to be frank, Daniel, I actually thought 
when I've previously had businesses, I've actually thought the problem was me. I thought I wasn't wired right somehow or other, or I thought I needed to get fixed. And it wasn't until a book that I read recently, I love reading, and there was a book that I read recently, um, and some of your members are EOS implementers, Mm -hmm. okay? And EOS, Entrepreneurial Operating System, uh, was made famous initially by Vern Harnish and his and his movement, and then Gino Wickman and Mark Winters, and they wrote a book called Rocket Fuel. When I read that book, Rocket Fuel, and I'd recommend this to, um, to your to your listeners and to the community. But what, when I read that, it was very clear that they were speaking my language, and that they that identified the entrepreneurial profile. That was me, and I did not need to be fixed. I just need to be um, complimented. complimented. Correct, complimented. Not being, hey, Greg, you look great. Thank you very much. But it's actually about uh, the the other the the seesaw, the other side of the um, of the skill set. And so, me as a typical business owner, entrepreneur, I like to drive things in a particular way. I like an outward focus. And there are some other people that I need behind me. Um, and typically as a leader, um, somebody who's more inwardly focused to right the ship. So I can set it in a direction and make sure that we're steering, but I need somebody to make sure it's all it's all fueled up, um, that we're really – that the maps are there, yeah. that everything's worked out. Does it make sense? Oh, perfect sense. Like like, um, uh, like Laura mentioned before we, we started recording, it's like uh, the Maya Alice, a cub Alice is the – is, well, she's now recently been promoted to head of operations mm. um, nationally. So she she is the person that that, um, that like I'm like that's where we're going. That's what we're doing. This is the best thing. It's going to revolutionise everything. Let's do it. And then Alice kind of implements it all and makes sure it works. And, yeah. and then the team all fires up and, and kicks ass as always. Yeah. But but um, if I didn't have um, that, it would be which I didn't for many many years. And you could actually <laughs> this is. She's going to probably ask for a raise, but you could probably look back through Cab's history and you could see from the point where she would have started and then the effects she would have had, you probably would see Cab's profits and revenues going shh, yeah. like, zzz, yeah, yeah. like you, you, and the better she got and the more confidence she got and the, the more responsibility she got, you probably, you probably see it to where, where, where it is today. So, I mean, I've never thought about it in that sense, but uh, I'm sure that has some sort of attribute to, to the success of the club is actually me having had found the um, operational person to, to rely on. Yes. Well, and that's exactly what the book Rocket Fuel talks about, which is that people like you and me who are entrepreneurial and we can see where we want to go, that that we need somebody who can then say, these are the plans, this is actually how to execute the plans. So Alice and other operations people are wired differently to you and me. There's nothing wrong with them. There's nothing wrong with us. We're just different types of people. I guarantee you there's something wrong with me, but we'll <laughs> move past that. Okay. That's for, Most that's, business owners, to be honest with you, I tried my full-time jobs. My full-time job is talking to business owners and there's something wrong with most of them. <laughs> they're, they're crazy. Just the mere fact that you want to be a business owner and you want to do that, yeah. there's got to be something wrong with you because it's not easy. It sucks most of the time and your odds of success are so low and, the, you know, your odds of, of um, being embarrassed or failure or bad things happen and not sleeping, like you really do have to have something slightly wrong with you to want to do it. Okay. Yeah? So just just, just yeah. slightly, exactly yeah. right. Yeah, absolutely. But we'll go through, maybe I'll have you on my podcast 
podcast and I'll give you some therapy there. Well, why don't you give your podcast a bit, a bit of a shout out right now so uh-huh. the listeners can, can migrate over after they hear this? Uh, I have a podcast that I've um, put on over time called Start Strong, Finish Strong with me, Greg Weiss, and uh, we've done a number of episodes. I've let it sit a little while over COVID. Um, I wasn't overly inspired, but just this experience alone is really I'm enjoying myself with you and I'm thinking what I'll do is I'll, uh, I'll do that. So if you, I might get you on my show. We certainly can do that. Yeah, a lot of members say that they say, "Oh my god, that was." Everyone goes, "Oh, I was so nervous the first ten minutes," and then, and because our our podcast guests are all members, so we don't use like professional speakers or media trained people. We just use uh, the members of our community, and a lot, many of which haven't done podcasts and media before, mm. and so they're always nervous the first ten minutes, and then at the end of the show, they're like, "Oh my god, that was so much fun! I, I could do that again. I, I could do another one." It's 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 always so funny to see that. It's like having a date. Yeah, it is mm. because you just sit there, kind of asking questions and mm. like I'm just prodding trying to get to know someone and mm. I always find that the members that come on the podcast are the ones are the members that I know the best in the club particularly now how I when this I mean there's a lot of members and I don't have the opportunity to meet everyone anymore uh, the way I am able to get to know people on a more personal level is actually the podcast that's yeah, wonderful yeah and um, and actually we're building a podcast studio. So I wasn't talking shit when I started this episode. We're actually building a podcast studio oh, um, in Pulse Point. That's a great service. Yeah, yeah. And mm. the members will be able to use it. Fantastic. So I think that's really good. I'll and put my hand up for that. Certainly. And so to get back to um, the finding your operational uh, person, can, can you maybe just walk us through how someone should go about that? Well, there's got to be a particular point in time where there's a realisation that things are just not – grow in the way you want it to be. So there may be a number of a number of issues and I've written a book about that, that there are some 10, 10 insights that um, I give uh, entrepreneurs on when, that may, when they may feel that it's ready, that they are ready to bring somebody else on. Now, often the case is that people say, oh, geez, but that's just going to add to my bottom line um, and um, it's going to take some time. But, you know, you, you were a great exa- example of, how your business started to really ramp up once you actually had somebody else who could start to implement things. That was that, that's your Alice. So what we do is we actually see if, if somebody starts to recognise that they need somebody, then what we'll do is we'll sit with the CEO, we'll sit with the entrepreneur, and what we'll do is we'll talk through about what those issues basically are. I, I mentioned earlier about the importance of culture, and often an organisation will be a reflection of founders' values and culture itself. So whatever CUB represents today, I hazard a guess that it actually comes from you and Anthony, okay? And and so your values, your ethics, your work culture, whatever it is that, that, is, that, is, that comes out of you, comes out of him, is primarily, and I know there are other partners there now, but, to, but primarily it's your values. So pretty much any business I've ever founded and scaled has also represented represented mine, my own values, and I see that all around. So one thing is um, is how do we actually look at the the values of the uh, of the owner, and where are the frustration points, and also looking to per, uh, looking to profile the business owner. So from a, when I say profile, we're trying to we're we're looking to get to the bottom of. What, where their strengths are and also their personality. Now, I know, for example, I don't put 100% credence behind it, but I do like the idea of the Myers-Briggs types, type indicator and I am an ENFP, okay, which basically means that I have, there are 16 profiles and I have 
um, what's called a campaigner profile or a promoter profile. So I need somebody who's not me, otherwise it's a waste. I need somebody who can counterbalance what that particular profile is. And whatever profile um, we, mechanism we, we use, it's instructive enough for us to be able to find out, well, what is it that, you, uh, that you're naturally wired to and that's going to have some strengths and some weaknesses. So there's another guy called Marcus Buckingham and he was one of the main high-profile people out of Gallup. And Gallup is one of these really high-profile um, consulting companies. And what I loved about Marcus Buckingham's work is that he talks about strengths, that always dealing from your strengths. And so the idea being that if we can find out what your personality is like and what your strengths are, then we find the um, where we can counterbalance that with a COO. What we know primarily is, according to Rocket Fuel, is there's a certain personality type that is an entrepreneur and a business owner. And then there's a certain personality profile of somebody who what they call an integrator or what I call a, a, an operations manager. And they just look at things differently in much more systemic ways. So it may be, for example, that um, you have a big idea and you, and you say, guys, this is what we're going to do. And then I've found exactly the same thing. I have these brilliant ideas and then I scratch my head and I think, what the heck, how am I, how am I actually going to get this happening? And if I reflect back at the most successful business I ever had, I had somebody who was my business partner, my yang to my yin, and it was really like the seesaw paradigm I use also. And you need both to actually make the seesaw work. It just can't be one side or the other. And so what I, what I found in that particular business was that things rocketed to the point where we were actually, we became the market leader in our field. And we were actually doing what you're doing in Cub, I was doing with HR directors quite some years ago and I sold that business for a fair financial gain. And so you basically, you, you uh, Myers-Briggs yourself or you disc, disc test or you whatever, disc, whatever. Yeah, yeah. I did the disc once, mm-hmm. whatever your test is. Mm-hmm. Um, you do that, mm-hmm. you understand your uh, strengths and weaknesses. Mm-hmm. You go find someone, you can give them the disc test too because we used to do that for new staff members. Because yep, yep. uh, we figured out all our salespeople have the exact same score and all, right. all the different people, they all had common right. results. Mm-hmm. But then it got a little biased because you're like, if someone came in and they didn't have that result, you're like, oh, I want to hire them, but now mm-hmm. I don't know if I should. So mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. actually stopped using it. Mm-hmm. But um, but you, you'll 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 um, uh, find someone that complements that and yeah. someone that fits within the culture that is you. Because that, that's right. as you're, uh, I fully agree with what you said. The the business definitely is uh, it resembles uh, the founders uh, or the entrepreneurs' character and personality because mm-hmm. a business is a nothing. It, it, it's just, it's it's kind of like the the founder pushes it out. You know, it's just kind of like, I don't know what how you describe it, but it's like a it's like a metaphor towards what that founder is and what they want to achieve. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's because it's, I mean a business is nothing. It's just people. Mm-hmm. Those people follow a person and, and that person follows their vision. And so I don't know how to describe it, but I fully agree with So the, there's a guy called um, Michael Gerber. So he he wrote book called The E-Myth, uh, which is the myth of entrepreneurialism, okay? It's a book that he wrote quite some years ago. And I love what Michael Gerber talked about because he said that most people start a business in an entrepreneurial fit, okay? I, I want to start a business, okay? And then they, they go, they may not even have a plan. A lot of times visionaries, 
people, you know, our profile may have a broad idea about what it is that we want to do, but think we'd actually have a written down plan or something on those lines? Probably not. Okay, um, more often than not. And then as things grow, um, um, then things get more and more complex. What Michael Gerber said is not only about people starting a business in an entrepreneurial fit, but he said people start, people know the technical side of the business, but not the business side of the technical. And what I mean by that, or what he means by that is, let's take the example of a lawyer who may, who may have worked within a law firm and then starts his own, his own firm. Okay, he knows the technical side of law, but not the um, not the business side, side of, of, law. of running a law yeah, firm. Correct. Very different. Very different set of skills. And so, at some particular point in time, there's going to be a plateau. It might even go backwards, and that's where the entrepreneur starts scratching his head, and thinking, or her head, and just thinking, should he or she have even started this? Would I have been better off just staying with a firm that I'd been with? This is too hard. But it's not around anything other than um, having the recognition that there are certain strengths, certain natural tendencies that people have, and that's typically um, the person who starts the business has a set of a propensity in one way but needs to find somebody else who can counterbalance. And so when that's solidified when we go about doing all that stuff that I talked about before, then once we've got this baseline, then we can work out an appropriate strategy about the type of people are going to fit within that. So we will recruit those people, we'll go out and do some search or do some work that will find some people who can then be shortlisted for the entrepreneur to actually then interview and then make a decision and you know the benefit you just said beforehand and um, and that's with, with Alice coming in and things had changed there. And so it certainly is for earlier staged businesses that, that are trying to still grow, isn't it? That, that's that's when it's most relevant. Well, our, odds are if they've grown, they probably our, are able to. Um, probably the case. But what I'll, I'll, sh- I'll share with you that the majority of our clients are typically around getting closer to that 15 people mark. I don't look at value. I look at uh, like size. I look at employee size. And so we've helped organisations that are up to about 200 um, where they may have to replace somebody. So there are different stages of growth of an organisation. So maybe they've outgrown um, the, uh, the the type of people or that they had beforehand. Maybe they need more. Or For maybe, example, like we yeah. have Holly in Melbourne who mm-hmm. runs all the operational yeah. uh, stuff in Melbourne. Alice yeah. wouldn't be able to do that from Sydney. Yes. Um, and therefore you need more operational people yeah. to continue expanding. Absolutely. So new divisions, new departments, new areas and so on and so forth. And and so, um, you you find this person now. Do you how do you best onboard this person? So you were mentioning uh, onboarding and use these companies with how to do that. I was saying we've got the best onboarding process in the world. Let's figure out if we actually do. So I want to hear from you. Is how do you recommend companies onboard uh, new people? Okay, so onboarding is different to induction and orientation. It's very likely that people are going to induct people um, or even orientate. So a simple orientation would be, um, hey, welcome, Laura, to uh, to to, uh, to Cub. Um, I just want to show you here are the toilets, here's the kitchen, um, this, is, uh, this is Anthony, this is Tara and so on and so forth. That's a little bit of an orientation. And induction gives people an understanding about, okay, um, to password in, this is your logins and all that sort of stuff. It's not a lot of – but an onboarding yeah, onboarding is very different. It's actually about anybody 
um, if you think about uh, anybody who's hiring, they're hiring in order to be able to get somebody productive who can also fit. And that's really probably the essence of the whole thing is how can you get somebody to come in and to become productive as quickly as possible and for them to be able to fit within your organisation. Because we as human beings have a natural tendency to be suspicious of people who are new into an organisation or into our clique or whatever it is. And we are, and if I can draw the analogy um, of um, us primates, we're advanced primates, the second most advanced primates on the planet are chimpanzees. And they are violent towards other chimpanzees who don't fit their original tribe unless those chimpanzees really show that they are not a threat. They'll literally murder them. um, They're violent beyond belief how how, um, they'll just get rid of a a threat to... competing competing same species. That's it. And so we have a similar situation where where we'll look at people with suspicion and probably prefer to throw them out than to include them. And um, so an employee who comes into an organisation is under the intense spotlight of other people thinking, "Mm, was the hire right? Did Daniel get this one right this time around and so on and so forth, for example? Which Daniel sometimes does not. Right, okay, okay. (laughs) Daniel doesn't actually even employ anyone anymore. Someone else has to do that because Daniel's made a few mistakes. Okay, and that that may be, that that often falls to the COO. Alice actually hires everyone. There you go, okay. so With support of whoever else they're working with. So it looks like you're doing things the way our model also um, also subscribes to, and that is the operations person looks after that with the HR side of things. So when it comes to onboarding, it's beyond induction orientation. And what I do is I've actually written a book called Career Success, and within Career Success I have seven areas that people need to focus on in order for them to become successful and so that their probation period um, is a success. And so um, I've wrote a book called career success, uh, how to succeed in your new job. And there are seven areas that I've taken from the the famous McKinsey 7S framework. And the first is shared values. The centre of that paradigm is shared values. And um, and that's to ensure that your employer's values overlap and identify the behaviours that underpin these values. But on the flip side as well, for, for, for the business owners listening, you, we can be looking at the same thing. So this person needs shared values. Exactly. The same way, yeah. and, and so so McKinsey 7S is seven S's that are important and it's not just values but shared values. So S for, for that, exactly right. Then what we've got is we've got structure and structure is to master the formal and informal structures to ensure that the individual coming in understands the formal reporting lines as well as the hidden networks um, for tapping into information and influence. Then there's one which is style. So how do you manage your personal brand so that uh, you can ensure others gain an overwhelmingly positive impression of you? Then we've got skills. Apply your unique strengths to your role and minimise your weaknesses for career success. Strategy is to set up one to two winning projects to energise those around you and build trust, credibility and value. And that's an important thing I want to come back to. Staff Mm. is learn how to fit and where to contribute agreeing with your manager on the content of your role. And finally, the last of the seven S's, the seventh S is systems, 
get to know the way things work by establishing an accelerated learning agenda so that you can contribute effectively. Now, all those seven S's are critical for the alignment of um, any organisation, but critical for the alignment of an individual into an organisation. What was the sixth one? The sixth one was staff, how to learn how to fit and where to contribute by agreeing with your manager on the content of your role. I wanted to actually get to the one which was the fifth on strategy because in order for people to be able to get um, um, get the others to feel that there's some uh, that that's a really good hire, setting up one to two winning projects is really important. And so if you can um, facilitate that new employee to have um, easy pickings, um, low-hanging fruit, uh, that would be really great because it allows that individual to not only demonstrate that you've hired them in right but get those early wins to give the confidence of the other people around them that, yes, this person's on their, on the right track. And because so, and really obviously as an employer you've hired someone, you want them to be successful. Mm-hmm. If, they're, if they're no good or they're dodgy or whatever they are, you want them out but you've hired them thinking, okay, this person is, is a good fit and we want them we, – you want to give them the best chance possible to succeed. Correct. And so one of the, your roles, I guess, is what, from what I'm taking what you're saying, is actually helping them prove their value and place within the community of your, your staff, of your organisation yeah, yeah. by helping them kind of create a, a couple projects that bring value so that their fellow team members can then say – wow, we're stronger with this person yes, on this correct, team. And correct. that's what you're trying to facilitate. You're trying correct. to help them do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good idea. Yeah, and so as far as this is concerned, this is a, um, uh, I've written this book for it to be adapted into any organisation, primarily from an employee's perspective because most organisations don't, um, don't have an onboarding program. But it's not hard for an employer to take this and think, okay, what are those one and two um, projects. What are the um, um, what are the formal networks uh, under structure? For example, how does this place work? And the more complex the place is, the more reporting lines are, and more complexity there there is. But it's important for an employer to think: okay, what are those things that we need to be able to help the new employee with? And so this 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 book that I've written and our program helps people to really fit in well. And so they're more likely to pass their probation period than not. And the worst thing you want to be able to do is to come in and say, this person's the best person since sliced bread and you're proven wrong. Everybody else around you starts getting that awful feeling really early in the piece thinking, oh, no, this person's not going to make it. And then the whole you know, changing of the pattern of the chairs to be able to actually help um, to have that person into your organisation, it falls over. That person may leave and and that then um, really unsettles the remaining staff. But there's a propensity for younger people um, to probably be more flippant about their careers uh, and to say, you know what, don't know if I really want to stay here, I'm out of here, especially if they're not felt made to feel welcome, part, welcome part of some place. And um, the older people are, there's less likelihood of that happening. Um, but you want to know as an employer, and so listening to you know the people who knowing who's in your community, those people who are employers will be looking for bringing people in successfully and onboarding those people successfully, so that the rest of the team can be more stable and more productive as a result of that new person coming in. So basically, an onboarding process is 
helping someone belong to the team. Yes. That's the purpose of yes. it. And yes. you're doing it by, uh, you've listed seven things that uh, staff should know when, you know, to, to help them pass their probation. But your onboarding process from the business perspective could include several of those seven things. But the, really the goal is we need this person to belong here. Yes. And to belong here they need to be bringing value, fit our culture, be the yep. same style, understand yep. how it all works, blah, yep. blah, blah, blah. Correct, blah. correct. And I've always said to the team that we hold – um, even long-term because some staff, they, they can be with your business two years, three years, and they were never, you know, they, they, they were kind of just there. They were never really the bang on the money cultural fit or mm. ability fit or whatever mm. it was. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, they they can they get worse and worse and worse. They, they probably can feel that, mm, yeah, I don't belong here, and they get worse and worse mm. and worse. And then eventually the team is like, they, they almost make you kick them out. They're mm-hmm. like, this person, they, we're, we're not stronger with this person on the team. This mm-hmm. person's actually making us weaker. That's correct. Yeah, and and yeah. you need to remove them. So it's not even just short-term people. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's definitely also it, it, not just new people. It's also long-term people. And mm-hmm. we have something uh, at our team where uh, we, we encourage everyone to – so we're very aware that everybody uh, – that if you're on this team, the team needs to be stronger because you're here. Mm. You, you're not getting carried. Mm-hmm. It's a family, mm-hmm. but it's a family for those that are making the rest of the family stronger. Yes. So it's not like when you have your, I don't know, degenerate brother or cousin who, <laughs> you know, is always always dragging everyone down. Mm. He's, you're stuck with them because they're family. Mm-hmm. The business family is that you have to be stronger. Yeah. We can carry you when you need help. Yeah. But, but in the long-term scheme of things, you make the team stronger. And giving people the ability to hold others accountable to the fact that, hey, wait, you're not, you know, you're not working hard enough or mm. you don't care about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. I find that, to, to, I guess, to switch from onboarding to offboarding, I find then that the team almost chooses who leaves as a, as a, as a single team, a single mm-hmm. unit. Mm-hmm. The team's like, mm, this person's not a fit anymore. Mm-hmm. See ya. Mm-hmm. And, and it's a natural. And the reality is the person that leaves it's probably going to be happier somewhere else anyway because they're obviously not the either culture or ability fit yeah. towards that particular team. Yeah, and then they, they would have known that for a while as well. So I often find that with the uh, offboarding or the outplacement side of things, a lot of people feel almost relieved that they've actually that they've been moved on. Um, now this may have been primarily around say business business conditions. When push comes to shove, about half the people I meet are really quite happy that they've actually got this um, situation where they're no longer. Or if they're not at first, they might be after two months where they've kind of the stress of not fitting in or the stress of I don't know whatever the whatever the thing was is kind of gone and there's the next opportunity. Yeah, you know they they can see the light. Like okay, now that was correct. That that's that was meant to happen. Yeah. And, you know, in, in terms of your uh, the um, not only just, just want to come back to your point about um, belonging, but it's also to feel safe about um, and um, to be part of the family and to open up and to talk authentically about how they're feeling or that something's not right and so on and so forth. So it calls for an individual to be able to call something out, but at the same time, uh, and, and as, as long as it's working within, you know, the values of the organisation, and for people to also feel safe, they can call something out as well about the individual or the other people. I mean, people are, people are complex and so the idea that you can mix and match people doesn't always work. But it's proven that if you effectively onboard people, that the likelihood of somebody passing a probation period and staying for long haul is in the 90s 
But if you don't effectively onboard somebody, there's a very high likelihood, even about seven or eight out of ten chance that they're not going to stay there for the long haul. Either you're going to ask the person to leave or they are going to just opt out. So the more you can, to your point, make people feel part of a family and feel that they belong and that they can be productive and they can feel safe and happy in their workplace, that's, the, that's a beautiful formula for long-term success. Sadly, then people do actually leave and that's the outplacement side of things. We use, uh, so part of our onboarding, we have a document. What's the document called, Laura? Is it called a code of conduct? Mm-hmm. It's, not an, it's not like a real code of conduct, what a typical, what a big corporation would have. It's basically like on this team, this is what the team's about. This is how everything works. This is what you need to know. This is what's expected of you. This is what we stand for. This is where we're going. This is where you fit. It, it's really quite in depth. It's mm. really, really a great document, mm. and and uh, I always found that. Um, and, and sorry, we go through that with the new people, um, but at the end of the week, with the rest of the team, we also test them on it. <laughs> so we put them on the spot, and it, it sounds mean and a bit scary, but it's not because they always pass because they definitely are studying like you know the different values and they know it's happening. So they they're nervous, but they make it's making them learn it. And then once they've kind of you know recited a few of the company things or they've done that and everyone starts clapping and everyone's so happy for them. You know, they really feel, oh, mm. you know, I've passed. I'm in. I feel That's good right. now. You know, like it's it's yeah. a, it's a, we've done that. We used to make people, this, I probably, I don't even know if this is mean or not, but but we used to make new salespeople. For example, Calvin, when he would when he joined, he would have had to pitch Cub to the entire team right. <laughs> at okay. the end of his first week. <laughs> and it was the best fun. They were, it was so funny. But but they'd always freak out. But then after, everyone claps for them. Everyone's mm. so happy for them. Mm. They always did a good job because we, we never made it. It was not rocket science. We gave we gave all the necessary tools and training the entire week to do so. But uh, I think it's just that feeling of, oh, you know, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm in now. So yeah. I don't know if that's encouraged to other people, but certainly works for it. Well, works I, for Gab. I, I, well, I think, I think, I think there's a lot of there's an enormous amount of merit for that. I think that um, helping people um, feel that they're part of that. They, you know, people like the idea of having a bit of a test that they can achieve. Uh, so it's some sort of achievable thing. They can get past that, and they feel, you know, you beauty. And now I'm actually I've crossed that I've crossed line. that divide, across yeah. that line, and now I'm part of you guys. And also then you're forced as the company to train them the entire mm-hmm. week. So mm-hmm. like you're with them all the time. You're, yes. you're doing different – we have different like um, topics for different days mm-hmm. and different time frames and things. That's so, great. You mm-hmm. know, they go through it mm-hmm. and and so you're forced to also help them because you need them to pass anyway. So, you know, it's a, it's a win-win for kind yeah. of everyone. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so that, that that's our onboarding. That was what I was going to share with you oh, before. That's great. Well, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see your code of conduct, actually. Yeah. Oh, I can definitely share that with you. Yeah, it has our great. culture. It's got this is what to do, this is what not to do. Mm-hmm. If you're in this situation, this is how, like, mm-hmm. this is what's expected. Mm-hmm. It's pretty cool. It's that's pretty good. It's pretty in-depth. We spent a lot of time on it. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, you mentioned uh, fireworks or what was that book? A rocket, rocket, rocket fuel. fuel. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Similar sort of concept. <laughs> That's right. Maybe That's we'll write funny. a book called Fireworks. Yeah. I think you should. Yeah. That's what I remember. <laughs> Rocket Fuel. Um, but you mentioned Vern, Vern Hirsch has a book called Scaling Up. Yep. And then uh, Gino Wickman I know has a book called Traction. Traction. Yep. They're both great books. So what's the difference between <laughs> Fireworks, Rocket Fuel and those two books? Okay. And the really, methodology. Really good question. So so Vern Harnish made, I believe, um, uh, Gino Wickman um, 
famous with his with his two books. So traction is about the application of the entrepreneurial operating system. Rocket fuel is the recognition of you as an individual. So it deals with some aspects of traction, uh, the book traction, but they're separate pieces of work. So largely the the structure of rocket fuel was saying, hey, are you an entrepreneur? And if so, do you follow these particular uh, this, this, these particular traits? Are you an uh, an integrator or an operations person? Do you follow these particular traits? And if so, then uh, then you're naturally you've got a natural tendency towards that. Okay. So traction will talk about the EOS. There's different aspects to do with their operating system. I'm drawing with my finger a circle around that because that's what their model is. But um, so it takes the it takes it talks about EOS in traction, but Rockfield talks about the individual type of profiles. Yeah, I've read traction. I've read traction. I really like it. So what mm. Rocket Fuel is more uh, learning more about yourself, yes, and then what you need to then implement traction, kind yes. of thing. Correct. Correct. Awesome. Well, thank you for today. Thank you for your support as a member, and I'm very happy to hear that you're enjoying it. To our listeners. If you want to find out more about Greg, read his or find his books, his LinkedIn websites, go to cub.club forward slash podcast and you can find it all there, including uh, favorite quotes and all, that, all sorts of other things. Uh, reach out. I'm sure he'd be happy to, sure. to, to have a chat. And if you want to catch up with Cub on social media, it's at Club of United Business on Instagram. Keep up with us there. Greg, thank you again, sir. Thank you. That's, that was lots of fun. It's always good, isn't it? It is great. I love the podcast. See you guys. Thank you.